sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, what's up? It's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's easy to get involved in the show. All you have to do is send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And we've got one this week from, uh, hey, it's from a guy named Mark. That's right, Mark. Pleasure to meet you, Mark. I bet he's with a K. Right? Mark, Mark, this is Mark. Yeah, Mark with, with a K, the, right? Mark with a K. We're, we're, it's, you know what? You know what, Mark with a K? I, someone gave me a birthday card, and it said, 85% of Marks who have a K have more chest hair than Marks with a C. And it's like, there's like, a, the Mark with a C like has this kind of like, oh no, why me look? And then the Mark with a K is like, look at my hairy chest. <laughs> So what did what did Harry Chest Mark send us a letter about? That's when I when I hear it. everybody's gonna like this letter. He gets right to the point. He says, "What's the story behind the split between Lou Graham and Mick Jones of Forner? And more importantly, why do critics hate Forner? Yeah, why do, why do they? Like, how many like do all critics hate Forner? Is that a thing? Here's the thing I don't get." They have so many great songs. God, they have so many great songs. And they sold so many records. And where where is Foreigner in the hierarchy of Journey, Boston, Eagles? Like, I don't think they belong. But why don't they belong? So I, I, I've been thinking about this since we got asked this question. And I, I wonder if part of the reason they don't get celebrated a ton is because how they license their songs. Hear me out. Like... I know this is um, our age difference, yeah. but I'm pretty confident that the first way I became aware of Forner is the song Double Vision in a Burger King commercial. And do you remember Head Games? The the LP, the cover of Head Games? Yeah, so I thought until this week that she's peeing in the urinal. <gasps> she's not, though. No. That's not what's happening. She, she looks kind of scared, bathroom, not aged really well cover photo. Yeah, but do you know who that is? Is it? Is it your mom? No, it's the... <laughs> what? Why is it devolved into this? We're like three minutes in, Murdoch. Okay. Uh, I did that it, earlier. Sorry, it, everybody. It is... It's uh, Heather from Heathers. It's like one of the Heathers from Heathers. What? Yeah, dude. That's Lisanne Falk. Like, she was a child model with Brooke Shields, and then she gets this gig, and then she is in Heathers she's the as ye- Heather McNamara. She's yellow Heather. Yeah. She wears the yellow coat. Yeah. That's how you know. Like my, the lunchtime poll, she's the one the yellow coat. I know this shit because my daughter is obsessed with Heather's the Musical right now. Yeah. Have you heard the songs from that? No, but my daughter apparently is obsessed with it and been watching like stuff on YouTube. Yeah, she it's, hasn't seen it's, it. it's body. But anyway, what are you going to say about head games? Like dirty white boys on that record? Like, come <laughs> on, man. There's like head games is on that record. Like, uh, like so, do you understand I, the album cover? Because I actually had to read an explanation of what's supposed to be happening in there. So what's Heather doing? So she is wiping off graffiti off the bathroom wall. And she's... Because they have been asked to atone for this because people have been weirded out by like, what is... Like, is she being attacked in the bathroom or whatever? This is a whole conversation around this album cover. Corn nuts! And so what she's supposedly is cleaning the bathroom and doesn't want to be caught in the boy's bathroom. And the reason they chose this photo is it's a play on the idea of head games being head, hitting the head, the bathroom is the head. Foreigner's way too highbrow <laughs> for this classic. This is why they're this is why they're not respected. It's because critics are like, what is this hoity toity classic rock? It's pretty high concept for a girl standing next to a urinal where guys just pee in a wall. Right? Right. But okay, but but so but so, so far off I don't even know where we are. Yeah. Right now. But 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 so we, but our 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 ages are different. So yeah. I oh, thought yeah, yeah, Foreigner yeah, yeah. was badass. Yeah. But you got introduced to Foreigner with double vision from a Burger King commercial. Yeah, okay. So and if you go and look, like I mean, Hot Pockets, Diet Pepsi, Toyota, E Cigs. Those are just a few e- things e- that e-cigs? yeah from recent history that have used Foreigner songs to sell products. This is a 
this is where we are now, right? In 2023. Now, I, I'm not sure how that stacks up with other bands from the era. I didn't go back and do a comparison to see, like, you know, as what what Boston songs have been used in commercials. Hmm. But I will say, songs like Jukebox, Hero, and Cold as Ice, they, they sort of lend themselves to commercial work. Right. And the average music fan forgets their enormity if, if they haven't right now. So they legit are amongst the best selling bands. Of, of all time. time. Right. So here we go. The facts. This isn't fake alternative facts. 80 million records sold. And half of those are in the U.S. And to put that into scale for you, Boston and Journey have sold 100 million. So they've sold 80 million. So it's not like they're this Bush League cover band. Yeah. That's a lot of freaking records. That's a lot of records. They have 10 multi-platinum albums, 16 top 30 hits. Damn. It's like they're Hall and Oates or Brooks and Dunn or something. <laughs> they have as many top ten hits as fucking Fleetwood Mac. Now that's crazy. And one less than the Eagles, and more than Journey. That's pretty. That's pretty incredible. And critics don't like them. So now. Why don't they like them? This question is, Mark has a point. Like, what is this? What's happened? Well, to drive that point home a little, can you guess what those other three bands that you just mentioned have in common? Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, and Journey. What do they have in common that they that is not true of Fortnite? That Fortnite does not have their not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Brian. God damn it, you're right. You're so good at this. Exactly. Uh, this is a quote from the uh, from Doc and Bass's Jeff Pilson, who, of course, as you know, is in Forner now. Yeah, for 20 years. Uh, I think it's very, very simple why Forner isn't in the Hall of Fame, and that's because critics were never all that into Forner. They always viewed it as very commercial and corporate. Three words. Dirty white boy. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know what that means. It just felt fun to say. Yeah. So we could put this question about the critics to rest right there, I guess. But I did discover a little more meat on the bone that I think is sort of hard to resist. Yeah. And that is that while Pilsen, in that quote I just read, is sort of making a general statement, and he's being slightly dismissive about the whole concept, Lou Graham, the lead singer of this band in its heyday, is getting a lot closer to calling out actual people that he thinks are to blame. Okay? And this is, like, still happening. About five or six years ago, he did a radio interview, and he said this, quote, Sometimes you wonder if it's a political thing more than a musical thing or anything to do with achievement, because as far as achievements, we've certainly achieved a tremendous amount. Now, you just read the stats. The numbers don't lie. He's right. All right. They have achieved a tremendous amount. Yeah. Uh, and very recently, I'm talking in the last few weeks, he said this, quote, it's a personal vendetta between the gentleman who owns Rolling Stone and and Mick Jones. Mick Jones is the guitar player. We're going to talk about him in a minute. It's very juvenile, the whole thing, and I don't think it's going to get better. I think it's going to stay that way, and I think we're being made an example of. Oh, it's terrible. So the gentleman, and let me just say I use that term loose AF, <laughs> is Jan Winner, who is the co-founder of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and until recently was on the board. And the reason he's not on the board is he decided he was going to put out this second book called Masters and all the people that he features in it are, are white men. So he was asked in an interview... I, I don't even, uh, I, I'm laughing, not because it's funny, but because it's ridiculous. Yeah, if, so if you haven't heard about this, he was removed from the board the same day all this happened. So... He doubled down on these statements where he basically said he wasn't going to include women or people of color in the book um, at all because they weren't, quote, articulate enough. That was one quote that he used. That's some of the words. And, and all of it was super ugly. And I read this whole piece about that this had happened. And the very first comment at the top in all caps said, at least now, Foreigner can get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was like, holy shit. And then Brian told me this, we're going to read this letter, Mark, that you sent in. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. Uh, I think he proves himself through this thing that just happened, Jan, that is, to be pretty interested in being a gatekeeper and a tastemaker, right? Even if we're not going to dive into you know the creepiness and the 
stupidness of what he said. You know, even in this day and age where magazine-style journalism is dying and inclusivity is becoming more or less mandatory in mainstream culture, this guy is very concerned about being in charge of who gets in and who gets out. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? And if that's true of who's in his book, it sort of seems like it might be true of a Hall of Fame that he helped create and control. Right, and the the same article I read where, you know, it, it talked about these things that he said that were, you know, I mean, just really fucking offensive, basically, to yeah. everyone that's just not in the book. Someone made this statement, and it was, it was telling, and the idea that he's such a narcissist that he doesn't care opening his mouth about the, the reaction that it gets, like the interpersonal communications is gone. And someone said, you know, the bands he likes are the ones that sell 8 million records. And if you go and you look and you take a list at everyone who has been on the cover of the Rolling Stone, you'll be like, in a four-year period, U2 was on it 16 times. Yeah. yeah. Well, why? Yeah. You know, it's like, so there's... There's things where he went back to the well for the bands that he liked quite a bit and apparently was not a really big fan of the anti-corporate, you know, 90s music that we had. I don't know if he begrudgingly put the most popular band on the world in, in the on the cover and put Nirvana on there, but like, you know, he didn't put Mudhoney on there, right? Right. But so my what I'm understanding is that he's uh he's been an unfortunate tastemaker. Well, so he put out a book. First of all, there was a book about him that both both you and I own, and I don't think we've made it all the way through. I got the audio book, and now I'm just going to trash it. <laughs> but then he wasn't happy. It was authorized, but he wasn't happy with it. So then he wrote his own book. And so at some point during that cycle, I believe that was like last year, he goes on WTF with Mark Marin. Have you heard this interview? Now, it's weird that he didn't like the book because he did a lot of press for it. I hated a lot. No, he he liked his book. He did press for the other book. Yeah, I heard, see, I I, I downloaded it because I heard him on Stern, and I was like, "Well, this will be interesting." And that was the that was the first time I heard that. Yeah, but if you're a narcissist, like it's never good enough, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I was just because of where he sat in the music industry and what he did, and and you know whether or not like you know. And I'm look, man. I'm one of those guys. I'm like, how long did it take fucking Kiss to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, dude? Like, come on, well, man. Well, you talk trash about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame every time it comes up. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like, come on. Like, there's nothing really, like, brainiac going on with Kiss. But, like, I mean, come on, man. Like, they, there is no insane clown posse without <laughs> Kiss, literally, period, for one reason, one reason only, looking like kabuki yeah. weird Halloween guys, I right? I mean, that's true. I've, I've never actually heard someone say that out loud, but I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. Well, and, and so when he goes on WTF, this is this is what happens. I love Mark Maron. A lot of people know that I got into podcasting because of Mark Maron. And uh, he is the godfather. Murdoch and I have met him, and it, we both fanboyed, and it was embarrassing. We, yeah, we did the... It was like a pilgrimage. Uh, yeah, we drove to see him. It was beautiful. Anyway, <laughs> Merritt straight up asks him. He's like, do you hate Forner? Like, that's a li- <laughs> like he pretty much just asks him, because he, he gives no fucks, and it's a beautiful thing. Here, here is the quote. There is talk of that. This is Jan. But I don't control that. I'm not on the nominating committee, and that whole era doesn't come up, end quote. And this is a nod to REO Speedwagon, Boston, and Sticks all not being in. But if you keep listening to that interview, he also says, nothing against Foreigner. In fact, I was very good friends with Mick Jones. I was. He yeah. says it in the past tense. So I find that really interesting. They, they could be some validity to a feud between Mick and, and Jan. It like almost looks that way. Yeah. And why wouldn't it be for someone that has this narcissist sort of complex. This that, complex, this God complex. He, he's got a God complex. Well, if he gets to decide, I mean, this is, whether he says he's on the nominating committee or, or whatever, like, now, oh, come on, man. He's got, his, he's got his finger on a weight in there somewhere. He does it now. He gets to stay at home in his sunroom and what, <laughs> whatever you do when you ride off in the sunset <laughs> and everybody in the world thinks that you're an asshole. But, okay, here's the other thing. I'm very interested in this idea that Lou Graham alludes to when he says quote, being made an example of. Mm-hmm. What's the lesson? Not to cross you on? 
don't get a certain level of famous, don't have a certain amount of hits in a certain time period. Like, I don't understand what the lesson is. Well, if, let's get a little deeper in the, the story of, of the band, right? Because it's interesting because we were talking about this band right now on the heels of doing a bonus episode about Gary Wright. Yeah, Gary. I don't know if people know that. The Dreamweaver, right. Dreamweaver guy and, and uh, Mick Jones are in Spooky Tooth together. Right, and that band also included a British musician named... Mick Jones. Oh, yeah. We should clarify that there are two famous guys in rock history named Mick Jones. One in Forner, one in The Clash. And yeah. we are talking about the one in Forner. Yes. The one that was born a couple days after Christmas in 1944 in England. I think people forget that Forner was just shy of being a super group. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, kind of. Because right there, it's like, how totally weird. So none of these guys were crazy famous for their previous work, but they also weren't coming in blind into the idea of that a band. being a band, yeah. Well, and this is an important fact to mention because it may partly explain again why this, why they essentially start as a studio band. And I, I think this, if if they start as a studio band and not a live band, that can also explain some of the complaints from the critics regarding this band, right? Because it makes them a little more calculated. This is a quote from Lou Graham: "When we started touring our first album, we hadn't played together before, so." It wasn't like we were a band that was playing out a lot and then decided to make a record. We were a band that first recorded an album and then started playing live shows. And Mick Jones does a lot before Foreigner and a lot after Foreigner for his own reputation rock history. And one of the most interesting things, he works extensively with this guy from France named Johnny Halliday. This dude is the French Elvis. Do you, do you know this guy? <laughs> Not until we got into yeah. here. So, I, know, I know Elvez... <laughs> but it's not, not not that, but not so, this guy. Johnny Halliday, his stature was so big in France that this allowed Mick Jones to work with a lot of people early on that are crazy, like rock and roll royalty. So he works with the Beatles. It as early as like '64, he hangs out with the Beatles. He works with Jimmy Page because Jimmy Page comes over to play guitar for for something for Johnny Halliday. Like that's how big this dude was. And like us in America, we've like never heard of him. Uh, he also. Ends up playing album or playing on albums for Frampton and the quiet, uh, the quiet beat. Yeah, get out your bingo card. He plays on a, on a George Harrison record, and this is all before Foreigner happens. Yeah, so Luke, Luke Graham had a little bit of pedigree too. He had been in a band called Black Sheep, which oh. always oh, gives, you're gonna get us here. Well, but also, <laughs> also, it makes me think about. Chris Farley and Bob Bob Black Sheep. Um, yeah, which and is a superior movie, Tommy Boy or Black Sheep? Tommy Boy, all the way. Yeah, that was a. I was gonna kick you out if you said Black Sheep was better. Yeah, there's a there's a record by a guy, a concept record about Tommy Boy that's called Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> what? Yes, it, put it in my veins. I'm going, right now. I'm going to. I'll. I'll. I'll well, I guess we should. So, I, like, I don't think it makes sense to put it in the show notes, but I'll, yeah, I'll no, share it. It probably will be, though. Yeah. Uh, so, but I will say the one great the one great moment in Black Sheep is the Roads bit. I have said Roads my entire life because Roads, when they're high on the whatever is leaking out of the back of the car and they're all high and the cop pulls them over and he's like, do you know how fast you were going? And he's going, Roads, Roads. What a funny word, Roads. <laughs> oh, wait. So we were talking about Black Sheep. <laughs> Right, the band. Oh yeah, the band. And who they and who yeah, they and yeah. who they opened up with? Right. Yeah, those other people that weren't in the Rock and Hall of Fame either. That's Kiss. Yeah, they went on tour with Kiss, bro. Lou Graham yeah. used to tour with Kiss. There's great stories if you go back and and read a lot of Lou Graham interviews. And let me tell you, Lou Graham likes to talk. Yeah. Uh, still in 2023, he I, honestly. I, th I think three phone calls and we get Lou Graham on this podcast if we wanted him. I'm really excited about this. I'm not sure I want him because the more you hear him, and we'll talk about this, the more you hear him talk, he's just complaining. He just sounds like a guy who's really pissed off yeah. about well, his lot in life. Well, at some point during Mick Jones's tenure in Spooky Tooth, Lou Graham makes his way backstage and, and gave one of the Black Sheep tapes to Mick Jones. So when Mick is putting together a new project in the mid-'70s and looking for a singer, he pulls this Black Sheep tape out, and he remembers that they might have an option they had possibly forgotten about. And that's yeah. Lou. It, it's, it's, it's a classic quote so we bought a guy a plane ticket story right but you you're driving home a point here which is this band is sort of manufactured mm -hmm. like not in a bad way but just in that mick is in between projects at this point and he's got this manager who we're not going to talk about but like if you were really going to dig into this you would you we would this guy's name would come up because 
this manager is very much sort of positioning Mick to certain things and saying, you should do this and you should do this. And he tells him at this point in his career, after he's done this stuff with Frampton and done this stuff with the Beatles, he's like, you should start a band of your own. And so they hold auditions and they take recommendations and this is not a group of best friends banging on guitars in a garage and deciding to chase a dream, right? It's a much more deliberate endeavor. This is Mick talking about his vision for what he was creating. So he has this whole like plan, right? Quote, what I wanted to do was a British take on American music. I had gotten into R&B, and I also loved soul music, and I was very comfortable with this idea of doing rock with a soulful feel, and that was the foundation for the band I formed. So, Mark, I hope you enjoy this story, which is awesome, about how they got a record deal. Oh, my God. This record deal, this is crazy. So they were shopping the band's demo, and the name of the band was the same as Willie Nelson's guitar. It was Trigger, (laughs) right? And so it keeps getting rejected. And then one day, this A&R guy, an Atlantic guy who they ended up signing with, um, named... John uh, Collender is in his boss's office, and he sees this tape, the tr- a trigger tape sitting in a pile. Yeah, so I think we've talked about Collodner on the show before. He's this guy who starts getting credited in albums for being himself. Do you remember this? We've talked about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. John Collodner as John Collodner, basically. And this, this all is rooted in a joke with Forner, because Forner does the Double Vision album, and they don't know how to credit him on the record. And so someone says, like, the idea of a mirror, like double vision, like put his name on both sides of the colon. And that becomes a thing that for the rest of his career, the bands he works with will credit him at John Kolodner as John Kolodner on the records that he works on. It's like being Johnny two times. Yeah. Well, that's literally what he's doing. So, um, Kolodner had gone to check out a band named trigger play live. And he was not a fan, but when he listened, he realized it was a different band. There were two triggers. (laughs) And while he was listening to the correct trigger tape, for our story's purpose, he hears, feels like the first time, and decides that the song has a bunch of potential. So so he goes back to his boss's office and begs to, to sign them. They'll change their name to Foreigner, thank goodness, as a reference to half of them being American and half of them being from England. So part of this question that Mark asks us up top, is about the relationship between Mick Jones and Lou Graham and how eventually it will dissolve. And so when you realize that these are all just accomplished guys basically starting a business together, you start to guess the kinds of issues that they might have. So I'm just going to let you write on your ballots what you think the issue is, and then we're going to read it. Oh, you're right. Yes. Who gets credit for what? That is that is what they argue about. Right. So we, if you'd listened to the episode about the, the band, we talked about Robbie Roberts from the band recently. And there's some similar similarities yeah, there. Just right? this like whole thing about like, I was in the room, so I get 3% or whatever, right? Uh, remember, Mick sort of sees this whole thing as his project. That's his manager said, you should do this. You should go find these guys. You should hold these auditions. And so when they get this record deal, he has songs he wants to record, mostly finished. And this is him talking about the time period. Quote, I had them all written from a very early stage, but I also wanted to make sure that Lou was included in the writing process. And he'll go on to say in that quote, because he understands, at least at this point when he is quoted, that Lou has to embody them. He has to sing them, right? And so he does feel like he should have some say into how they turn out. Yeah, and ultimately the... The first record had Mick as the sole writer on five tracks and co-writer on the rest of them. And Lou only gets co-writes on four total. But Ian McDonald, it's a guy that Mick really started this band with and he was in King Crimson, far out. He only gets a single songwriting credit and still, you know, people get pissed off, pissed off at each other. Yeah, well, Ian McDonald's still pissed about this whole thing. Quote, I had a lot to do with the development of those songs, and I'm still bitter about the way I was treated by some people connected to the band. I mean, this is like not a long ago quote. I should have had co-writing credits on a lot more than just one song. I deserved a lot more of the credit that I was giving. But that's the music business, though. Yeah, but this, <laughs> the songwriting issue that will become the talking point in regards to this band and these two guys, Mick and Lou, Though centers around something that happens a few later, a few years later, and that's I want to know what love is. I want to know, I want to know your relationship to this song. 
uh, I know that the album it came from was Agent Provocateur. Am I correct? You are correct. That is that, that is correct. That my friend should show how much I know about this because I own that freaking cassette. <laughs> I also I also know that when they played that song for Amit Ergden, who was the the president of Atlantic Records, and he heard it the first time in the studio, he cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that is a true story. So so that's the. The relationship I had with that, but I remember. But you didn't like make out in the backseat of a car to that song, or no? Get no. someone pregnant while that song was playing. I thought that song. I thought that song was a, a like a, a very wimpy song compared to the band that. Even though, like you know, like Cold as Ice, like you know that that song is driven not by a guitar, right? But that song still rocks. And I want to know what love is. Is a I mean, there's like a there's like a. A, a church chorus at the end that sings okay. that thing. It's, so, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's totally different. At the time, I didn't love it. And now, when that song comes on, dude, I turn that thing way up, man. Do you, Do you remember <laughs> speaking of the choir? The when when we were we still working together in radio when I had to run the contest to get a high school choir to back up Forner at a casino. God, we weren't working together. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. happened. That happened. Uh, that was their bit for a while, is that when they were touring casinos, they would like call a local radio station and get the local radio station to run a contest to get a local high school choir to audition to be the choir that comes on stage and sings. Totally. Wow. Yeah. So, yes, that happened in PRP1. Anyway, so... There is a version of the question at hand today, which is like, like, like if you were going to broaden the question to be like, what happened to Forner, both in terms of their reputation and the Mick and Lou break, there is a version of this that you, you could entirely center around this song. I think that would be sort of simplistic to do that, but I think you could do it because this song, it forces a lot of the tensions and it creates a lot of the cracks that are starting to form in the way that these two main dudes in this band have gone on to talk about this song in this time period for the rest of history. And to put it simply, Mick has been pretty dramatic when he talks about the song. First he says, it came to me in the middle of the night. He says he woke up his fiance and, and, and said, gotta take a little time. No, no. He literally <laughs> said, do you know what love is? And she said, I hope you do. And he said, no, 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 I mean a song. Come out and listen to me play this song. It's like 2.30 in the morning. This is a bit of a rock and roll trope. Do you, do you have any came to me in the middle of the night experiences in your own life? Did you ever like wake up to brilliance? Did that ever happen? <laughs> One time I had a dream, <laughs> and it was me and my college roommate, and we were hanging out, and then all of a sudden I was in... My parents' house, the first one that I lived in, and there was a screen door, and it was the screen door that had like holes in it and yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 classic. And um, Mick Jagger was like <laughs> out on the carports, we called it, where you parked the cars <laughs> underneath the the metal carport it had holes in it, so when it rained, it was like totally stupid, like roof for your cars. Uh, and I was like, oh my god, that's Mick Jagger. And my roommate goes, Mick Jagger, you know Mick Jagger. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And I woke up. That was a dream that I had once about Mick Jagger. Yeah, no, I don't have any, no, no epiphanies from dreams at all. I, I don't think I, now he didn't say it was a dream, but he just said it was the middle of the night and he was up working late. Do you know what love is? I, I will say the first, our first podcast came to me when I was feeding my, my youngest child. In the middle of the night. No way. Yeah, and then I, I wrote it down and came to you and pitched it to you the next day. So oh, that wow. did happen. That's we, my that's my Forner one. I want to know what love is moment. Where we talked about bootleg whiskey on our we very did, first our very podcast. first episode. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's wild. By the way, that was over a, a decade ago. Like way more than a decade ago. Yeah. Like, two de- like a dozen years ago. It's so a, It's a dozen years. It, it, this is Mick talking about the tune, okay? Quote, the song was an expression of my temper. <laughs> I shouldn't read it like that, but I can't help it. This song was an expression of my tempestuous, because no one says tempestuous Who in conversation. No one, no one does. Private life over the last, the, the three years before. I'd been through a divorce and then I'd met someone else who I was waking up in the middle of the night to make hear this stupid song. Uh, 
sorry, who I was going to marry. There'd been turmoil in the band through the huge pressure of selling millions of albums, and me and Lou Graham were entering a Cold War situation. Oh, man. What does that mean? Does that mean they were hiding underneath their desk at school like they used to make us do? That means Ronald Reagan was like, hey, hey. <laughs> you never had to do that. God damn it, Brian. There's no way when you were young that they had drills where they're like, okay, this is this is the drill for no, bad we, weather or for a nuclear war. Everyone get under your desk. We, we were the best generation because we... We were in between Cold War drills and active shooter drills. Oh, yeah. So you kind of made it. <laughs> All we had to do were fire drills. Tornado drills, I think. Those were still a thing. Uh, I think now they don't even do tornado drills. They're just like, if tornado comes, like, God God bless us all. We're, just, we're all dead. Right. So what what the hell does that mean? So I was wondering that. So I, I tried to dig a little deeper. I But I really just think it's about the music. Like, literally, the style of music being played. Lou has continued to be vocal. Like I said, Lou has been very outspoken about his grievances with everyone in the world for a long time. And he has continued to talk about how he did not want to do these ballads. Isn't it unfortunate when when uh, the ballad ends up being the hit? Like in the 80s, the metal bands had like... Is it unfortunate? I mean, I guess it's unfortunate from the extent that like these guys have one vision of themselves and the vision has to change. But it seems... It seems silly to be like, isn't it unfortunate? Like, you're either going to make a ballad and have a hit, or you're not. Like, I, for example, but you're but you're saying like the this idea of like the record label or the brass forcing this. I don't think that was the case with Foreigner. No, no, no. I'm just saying if I was CC Deville, which <laughs> for a moment I would like to imagine what being sober CC Deville is like. Now. I'm imagining what you dress like CC Deville is like. Oh yeah, and I had to get up. In front of a stadium, and and every rose has its thorn comes in the set. I'd be like, I no, I don't, I don't, this is a thing. I, I like, I want to play. I want action or cry tough or the songs that have like you know. Well, yeah, it's but the, it's the ballad. And let it's the about, stadium sing the song back to me. Oh, my life is hard. Like, come on. Yeah, but then the ballad, it the like the ballad. A lot of times ends up being something where the crowd, specifically some types of fans, identify specifically that song with the singer, and that yeah. song is yeah. not the band like that song yeah. is i want to rock your world brett michaels right so, so you're saying in defense of lou graham he has to carry the weight of that song yeah and and if huh. he doesn't and if he doesn't like it then you know that's that's part of the gig but it's that that is i mean that's true there is a quote from lou where he says there was a backlash to it because our audiences on the road were clearly diminished Enough that I was able to see just how much smaller the crowds were while I was performing on stage. I don't know if I believe this. And every now and then, in between songs, I would hear someone yell, You guys have gone soft! (laughs) Foreigner, right? Uh, Well, okay, so also, this is just classic band stuff. Like, here's another quote. This one is from Lou talking about Mick during this time period. When he continued to write songs in that vein, I purposely chose not to come up with any melodies or lyrics for them. Then he would go ahead and finish the songs himself and insist contractually that I had to sing them. And I can tell you that I didn't like singing them at all. So, I mean, I hear that and I'm like, this really was business school. Like this whole time, this was just a endeavor to make money. And then they started having an argument about how they were going to make the money. So, but he didn't want to work ballads and sing them, but he claims he needs a credit for that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is confusing. Talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? So, like, in some interviews, he talks about how much he hated the ballads, but I said a lot of this controversy centers around this song, and this is it, right? Lou Graham is still talking in great deal publicly in the year of our Lord, 2022. He did an interview with Blabbermouth, where first he breaks down how Forner divided up the songwriting credits and then complains about not getting enough of that particular song. So read that. Yeah, so this is <clears throat> excuse me, this is a direct quote from Lou. Quote, after we would record an album, Mick and I would sit down and we run down a list of the songs and he would say, what do you think you want on this song? And I would say, I think this one I contributed quite a bit. I would ask for 40%. And he would say, that's fine. And there were a lot of songs like Hot-Blooded and things like that where it was 50-50, a lot of songs. And 
waited for a girl like you. He really wrote most of that, but I had a good part of that too. I think that was 65-30. And then Ian McDonald had a little piece of that too, and I was fine with it. You see what you see what I'm saying about how Lou Graham talks? Like he just talks like the uncle who will not shut up. 65-30. Yeah, it's it so picture this. I think they both would like pick the percentage and write it down on paper and then slide it to each other. 63. <laughs> it's like it was a ransom or like it was a salary, a proposed salary. And so then they would chat about the variance, right? Where it's like, oh, I don't know, maybe I get 65 instead of 50 or whatever. So Lou claims that on, I want to know, they do this weird exercise and he writes down 65 for Mick and 35 for him. Because he will tell you he did the vocal by himself because Mick was working with the choir that ends up on the song that we've already mentioned. And so he was busy and and he did he did he said typically in their recording process, what would happen is Mick would stand in there and be like, Lou, try this, try that, and like sort of coach him through stuff for what was in his head too. And he said he doesn't do that. So for that reason alone, on this song, he should get a, a nice little piece of it. He said, uh, he was there for some of the writing sessions, the whole nine, right? So he slides over 6530, and then Mick shows his percentages, and he has written down 955. <laughs> <laughs> that's essentially what happens, right? Lou claims he says to Mick, he's so shocked, he says to Mick, 5%. Why don't you just keep all of it? And he claims that Mick just doesn't get the sarcasm and then does that. So that means Lou doesn't get royalties from any of the cover versions. There are so many cover versions of this, dude. Uh, Mariah has a great a great cover of this. Uh, Tina Arena. Winona. Oh, I didn't know Winona did that. Yeah. So <clears throat> this is Lou speaking. I like this. That was the beginning of the end. <laughs> narrator voice Lou narrator voice that was the beginning of the end uh there's a 2018 interview where the reporter asks Lou did you feel you had a partnership in the music meaning with Mick read his response yeah so here's the quote here quote when he wanted to be that way I did I never got tired of collaborating with Mick but things change and people's direction and styles change mind you I didn't want to be the same artist I was 30 years ago and sit there paddling water either. I like change too, but I felt that the changes we were making were moving us towards a rocking change. <laughs> Oof. That's a great that's a great way of what a quote. Making everybody sound terrible. Moving us towards the rocking chair. So you already mentioned this song comes out on Forner's fifth album, Agent Provocateur. Provocateur. And, and to return to the critical response to Forner one more time, can I read this review from Cream Magazine of Agent Provocateur? Oh, it's Cream? Yeah. 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 I don't know this. I'm ready to hear what Cream said about it. On this, their latest excursion into the gaping jaws of pulverizing mediocrity, our boys continue to wrestle with an all-too-turgid identity crisis. They still can't decide whether it's stupider to aspire to poor man's Led Zepp status or settle for being a weightier version of Chicago. Some swing and choice, huh? Either way, they lose, and this record is simply jammed with one dull de- defeat after another. That is... We do not get... <laughs> We do not get reviews like that anymore. <laughs> By the way, going back to that... Pr- I don't know. Have you read Pitchfork? Well, <clears throat> uh, well <laughs> yeah. By the way, Jan... Can I get back to that narcissistic yes, butthole? let's talk about that guy. So, apparently, someone wrote a negative review for everyone's favorite band, Hootie and the Blowfish, and Jan had that review yanked for a positive one. Really? I don't want to be with you. Like, he likes that song, apparently. Dude, I like Hootie and the Blowfish. We've never done a Hootie episode. There's we, some really good ones that Junk Harmonica from the New York Times has done, though. So I've sort of backed away from it. Yeah. Okay, but getting back getting back to where we were. So this album becomes notorious for how hard it was to get finished. So they switch producers. Yeah, right and, in the middle of it. Right. And they don't communicate. And this is the beginning of the end. Like, that's... <laughs> Stuff's starting to happen. Now, and eventually, Lou is going to get real interested in cutting through the BS and just having a solo career. I saw Lou Graham solo. I booked Lou Graham solo and then got fired from my job, and they canceled that music festival. (laughs) 
gosh. I was really excited about Midnight Blue, guys. Spoiler alert. I'm about to tell you how much I love the solo singles. Midnight Blue was a great... Right? Oh, they're so good. So the solo career, it probably yeah. seemed like a really good idea around that time. Yeah, because uh, Sting yeah. left the police, Steve Perry, uh-huh. Phil Collins. Yeah. I mean, great point. It's and, not like Mick hasn't been carving out projects just for himself, too. Right. And Foreigner, as we have already shown everyone, was really freaking successful. So, okay, so Mick... Meanwhile, so we've talked about Lou, and if he goes and does a solo thing as the lead singer of Foreigner, it makes sense because he's the the voice and face of the band. But nobody can be too mad at him because Mick has carved out this side career for himself, uh, it, while you know Foreigner is is doing pretty well, and he is producing records, and he actually produces some pretty significant output, right? And you have to think about the time we're at. So we're... This is like 80, 86, 87. Late, like late 80s. So 5150 by Van Halen, he gets to twist knobs. It's crazy. So it has to be Ted Templeman in him, I'm guessing. And then Bad Company's fame and fortune. And then a Billy Joel record I did have, and didn't have for long, Stormfront, because I was hoping it would be like, you know, whatever. The one had Uptown Girl and the other, like, seven top 40 hits on it or whatever. The top one where 10 he is, hits. The one where he's just pretending to make a doo-wop record from the 50s? Right. And the one where he's, he's like, working at the car mechanic thing, but he's yeah. also doing it with Christy Brinkley. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, quick aside, best song on 5150. 5150, for me, is Dreams. Mm, the wrong answer. It's Love Walks In. Oh, man, we are... Yeah, no, nope. <laughs> no, I just said that because I knew it would piss you off. Second yeah. quick aside. That's so Best funny. song on Stormfront. I know we agree on this. What's your favorite song on Stormfront? I go to extremes? Oh. Yeah. Oh, I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah. So good. I'll tell you what it's not. It's not, uh, it's not Alexa. Well, no. No. Uh, so when the, when the Lou Graham solo record hits, he's still technically in Foreigner. Right. I remember this. Because there's a solo record in 87. There's another one in 89. And they both yield a hit. Midnight Blue. Hmm? And Just Between oh. You and Me. Both of which I adore. Yeah. So I remember seeing him. And it was at a shed. So there was a lot of people there. Like twelve, fifteen thousand 15,000 people. And it was a bill with other acts. Like it, it wasn't like Lou headlining. But... He did like foreigner songs and like and killed it. Like people, you know, people know foreigner songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I really liked it. And Midnight Blue is a song I really liked. I had to play that song on the radio. Oh, so I used to spike it in, which is a radio term for playing it when it's not on the schedule. Yeah. I used to spike it in all the time. This is Lou talking to the LA Times in 1990, three months after he officially leaves Foreigner. Quote, three months ago, Foreigner hired a new singer. I was doing this tour, meaning his solo tour, and they wanted to record, and I would have had to cancel my tour, and that's not the way I work, man. It seemed like every time I was touring, they wanted to go into the studio, and our schedules kept conflicting, but the split was amicable. We're still friends. It does seem like it's a long time coming, though, right? But just because he leaves doesn't mean the rest of Forner is going to quit, namely Mick Jones, right? And so he hires Johnny Edwards for Montrose, and they release an album that nobody likes. Yeah, And then Lou Graham starts a band... With Vivian Campbell, who's in Def Leppard now, <laughs> that's called... Well, this is why the band breaks up, is Vivian Campbell... So two things are happening. Uh-huh. Vivian Campbell gets the, the offer. He, he's also doing a solo record. And so he's like a little distracted. And then he gets the call from Joe Elliott about joining Def Leppard. Uh-huh. And Lou Graham is on the alcohol train. Yeah, and, and where we're at, we're still late 80s? No, this is this is... In the 90s at this point. Okay, yeah. So so Vivian Campbell's free of Ronnie James Dio at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when Shadow King doesn't work, uh, Lou Graham, though, because probably partly because he is struggling with addiction, he has a lot to say about it. And he, I read articles where he basically says that the label and Mick Jones were working together to get that record to fail. Like, why would you as a label put a record out and then try to make it fail? That's stupid. But like... Because they wanted this reunion. They wanted Lou yeah. and Mick to patch it up and come back and do Forner together. Right. And, and and it works. Do you know the story of how they get back together? No, I really don't. Okay, so here's here is the story on the record of the reconciliation 
1992. Okay. So they decide to meet in L.A. It's May of 1992. It's, Do you know what happened in May of 1992 in L.A.? Yes. <clears throat> I went to this bar that they let me in. This is my first year in college, that summer. And in that bar that I would go to, they would just show VHS tapes on just repeat, like eight-hour tapes they recorded of the L.A. riots. Really? Yeah. So it was such a weird thing. That is a, that is a weird niche for a bar to want to be in. Well, I mean, it wasn't like... The, <laughs> it wasn't classy, is what you saying? It wasn't white tablecloths, man. Like... <laughs> People people were selling bottles of Xanax to people like upstairs and stuff. But yeah, so that was that summer. So yeah. So <clears throat> they're in LA. This is May of ninety two. And they, they decide to meet at the Sunset Marquee Hotel in West Hollywood. And it's hap- they meet when it's happening. And it's it's I guess like starts to happen and they are not allowed to leave. So they get sequestered by the city curfew. Mm-hmm. And they decide to just do the work while they're there together. Uh, This is a quote from Graham. I flew to Los Angeles during the riots. We got flown into John Wayne instead of LAX because they were shooting at planes. Mick and I got holed up in the Sunset Marquee with armed security guards walking around on the roof. It was a little weird, to say the least. Wow. And so Lou comes back. He says, if I come back, I'm bringing Bruce Turgon, who was was in Your Boy's Black Sheep. But he was also in Shadow King with Vivian Campbell, and he'll replace the bassist who let who left, and they will um, they'll they'll go on and and get back together for about ten years. He stays in the band on and off. I mean, obviously, it's not the height of Forner at this point, and then he will leave again in '02 uh, and and never come back. Though, and that's when in I guess in '05, Mick gets Kelly Hansen. And Kelly Hansen's been in that band now for almost 20 years. Yeah. And was Jason Bonham playing drums? Jason Bonham played drums for a while. There's, right. been, there's been a cavalcade of people who have come yeah. in and out. Like I said, Pilsen was in the band. And for basically any decision that is made by Mick Jones, at some point someone sticks a microphone in front of Lou Graham, and Lou Graham talks shit. So like, <laughs> there is a, you can dig up stuff where he just talks about how Kelly Hansen's not very good. You can dig up stuff about how you know, they're, they're screwing me out of my royalties. There's a lot of anger. But there's an interesting side note. Do you know about Luke Graham's health? Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he's not, he, he's not well. Like, something happened. So, in right? 97, he gets diagnosed with a brain tumor. Oh, that's right. Gosh. And, and, and so, it's benign, and they're able to go in and take it out. But... Something happens to his like pituitary gland, mm-hmm. which is not a word I've ever gotten to say on this podcast before. And, and I'd like to congratulate you. Health health class, baby. Uh, so it, it affects his weight. Right. And so if you see pictures, I mean, there it is, it's one of those things where if you see recent photos, I mean, even from the last 30 years, of Lou, you're like, what happened to that guy, man? He was, you know, and it it's actually rooted back to this brain tumor issue, yeah, that he had, and he like doesn't tour. He so on and off, he's tried to tour, but some tried to tour, but I, yeah, he doesn't. And now even Mick Jones is backing away from Forner, mm-hmm. and there is and and there's a lot in the press if you want to go read interviews from the last five three to five years of Lou Graham talking crap about Mick Jones because Mick Jones isn't always in Forner. Like you could go to see Forner and Mick Jones and Mick Jones might just not be on stage. Yeah. And that's happening more and more often to where, and so Lou's thing is like, how can they even call a Forner if none of us are in it? And there was a whole thing where, um, like, there's sure. there's been these moments where the two of them have come together to celebrate, like, a 40th anniversary or something, right? And they've played a little bit. But he, he's he been making these statements of, like, I'll never go on with the fake foreigner. Like, you know, I have to have original members in there for me to go on. It's like, dude, nobody nobody wants to hear you keep talking. Do you know what would make non-foreigner better than the foreigner they have now? Is if uh, they got George Lynch from Dokken, too. And they'd have two Dokkens. <laughs> in foreigner, it'd be, it'd be more docking than foreigner. It'd be they'd be rocking with docking more than they were before. 
with Mr. Scary. That'd be so cool. Dude, how cool would Foreigner be with a real, like, like a rock god? Oh, man. Uh, what, a, what a band. What a legendary story. And I still, I mean, we haven't really unhatched what happened with Jan. Oh, you think you think there was just like like Mick just pissed him off at some point or something? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he had a gr- I mean, I think my understanding with Gene and Paul is that they they did not have a relationship with Jan. Like they didn't. They never had a relationship with him. They never had a relationship with that new that that magazine. Always. So that was a personal thing. Yeah, it wasn't like a professional thing. It was like a. It, it seemed like it was. I mean, he does seem like the sort of guy that you have to bow down to, right? Like if you, if you don't acknowledge him or play his game, he will just he will he will power trip. Yeah. Before we go, we have to tell Mark the fun thing you told me last night when we were watching Bruno Mars about. <laughs> let's just say that out loud. We were at Bourbon and Beyond last night. It was awesome. And uh, you told me this thing about Mick Jones, which so, so Mick Jones has had some good luck with offspring. So here's the deal: hey, do you you're a succession guy, right? Oh yes. Okay, so I I have a feeling because I know your taste in women that you were you were big on Naomi Pierce. Yes. <laughs> that's Mick Jones's daughter, Annabelle Dexter Jones. So, yeah, that's not the part that got me. No, no, no. So the even the the Naomi Pierce. The hilarious part though is that he he married a woman who already had children and then helped raise those kids. And uh those kids are Samantha and Mark Ronson. Yes. So that means that Mick Jones Three degrees of Kevin Spacey separation involves Uptown Funk gonna funk you up. <laughs> With, with Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars. Uh, wow. So if you have a question for us, uh, you have something you want to talk about, you know, something you want us to research for you, you can send us an email just like Mark did. It is wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show, we would really appreciate you joining our Patreon. Patreon.com. We put tons of extra stuff up there that doesn't go to the regular feed. Audio, mm-hmm. newsletter, outtakes, video, all sorts of stuff. Um, and you can find it all there. And once you sign up, it's all retroactive. So you get it all. So there's months and most of a year worth of stuff sitting up there of bonus episodes and more and, and, content. Yeah. And you pay for it. It's great. So if you want to do that, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Instagram, of course, it's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.